Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. A crisis is rapidly unfolding between the United States and Iran. At time of recording, it was reported that Trump ordered and then called off a military strike against Iran in retaliation for the downing of a U.S. surveillance drone. Meanwhile, Iran is threatening to take actions that would put it in direct violation of the nuclear deal, otherwise known as the JCPOA, and Europe is trying its darndest to hold the deal together. There are many moving pieces right now, so I wanted to bring you an episode today that gives you some context and background for understanding and interpreting events as they unfold in the coming weeks and months. To that end, I could think of no better interlocutor than Lacey Healy. She is the host of the fantastic podcast, Things That Go Boom, and she just wrapped up her second season, which was all about the Iran nuclear deal. The podcast tells the story behind the Iran nuclear deal and does so in a really interesting and entertaining way, and I'd urge people to check it out. In this episode, we kick off discussing Europe's efforts to salvage the deal and the tough position that Europe finds itself in. And then we have a forward-looking conversation about some of the key decisions that Iran, the United States, and Europe will be forced to make in the coming weeks and months that could determine whether or not this crisis leads to war. A couple of notes before we start. First, please feel free to email me. You can do so using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Lots of great episode ideas come from your emails because this is just like a fantastic audience of smart global thinkers and policymakers and just interesting people in general or curious people. So uh, feel free to email me. I I love hearing from you. Also, a big thank you to those of you who have become premium subscribers since I've started to regularly publish my long-form interviews with foreign policy celebrity types who tell me their life and career. We have, I don't know, maybe like 15 of these already published with many more published every week. So do check out the archives of those on patreon.com slash global dispatches or just follow the link on the homepage. Thank you. All right, now here is my conversation with Lacey Healy, host of the podcast, Things That Go Boom. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. The reason why Europe is uh, trying to take some steps to address Iran's concerns is because Iran has said, uh, Europe, if you don't do something now, 
uh, to really bring us some of the benefits of this deal. And not only that, but address some of the sanctions pressure that the U.S. has been putting on since it pulled out of the deal. Uh, then we're, we're done. We're completely pulling out of the JCPOA. We're going to start enriching uranium again, and uh, we'll very quickly, you know, pr- pass the threshold that we are supposed to stay to under the JCPOA limits, and then, you know, move beyond that to twenty percent enrichment and beyond. And so, Europe is—they've—they've uh, they've now sort of announced this euro credit line to ease trade between the EU and Iran, and this is really, you know, a last-ditch attempt to. Fix what I think you know. Instex didn't fix. Uh, Instex was this special purpose vehicle that was supposed to uh, really address some of these concerns. Essentially, you know, begin to create a way for uh, Europe and and Iran to have commerce that that went around the United States and around the U.S. dollar. And that's one of the reasons why this is a really concerning move because. We've got our European allies here in the middle of the situation between the U.S. and Iran uh, and these ratcheting up tensions between the U.S. and Iran. And Europe is is sitting in the middle saying, well, we still want the deal. We still want to be a part of this thing. We think it was good for the international community. It was uh, it was a, a, a good step, at least in the short term, to keep Iran from developing a nuclear weapon. Um, what can we do to prevent Iran from just full force going back toward that weapon? And it's, um, it's sort of like interesting just to see both how much of a terrible position Europe is in right now. Yeah. Um, and also it sort of reveals just kind of how weak Europe is as well, which is sort of disconcerting. I mean, you know, you have Europe who is kind of getting bullied by both sides, by the Trump administration <laughs> and by Iran. I mean, the, the, the reason you reference Instex, that's this, um, sort of facility that would sort of help, uh, Europe avoid U.S. sanctions by creating this like credit line, as you said, for, for Iran. Um, but you know, European countries or, the, or European companies, I should say, are the ones being targeted by U.S. sanctions. Should they continue to do business with Iran, right? And and on the other side, Iran is threatening to enrich uranium uh, to you know above certain thresholds, which directly threatens Europe's security. So they're kind of getting bullied by both sides. Yeah, Europe is in a really terrible position right now. Honestly, they uh, it, it's tough for them to say. You know, they could go full force into you know just denying the United States' efforts to pressure Iran. They could, you know, just take Iran's side and throw cast aside their their you know longstanding allies. They're probably not gonna do that. They, on the other hand, could, you know, throw out, be 100 uh, percent on the side of of Trump and the United States and say, forget it. This deal that we worked to uh, you know, for for years frankly, to, to achieve. Yeah, it was junk. That's fine. We don't need it. Let's, let's throw it out. Uh, and let's, you know, negotiate a new deal. And, and actually the fact of the matter is they did try that second effort at first. Uh, Emmanuel Macron was extremely engaged in particular in trying to come to some sort of follow-on agreement with Iran prior to Trump's pulling out of the deal. And that didn't come together ultimately in the end. It it was something that they they just couldn't pull off. Uh, And so, you know, 
maybe given a little more time, they would have been able to do that. We really can't speak to, uh, you know, sort of the inner workings or what might have happened. It's just pure speculation. But we do see that, you know, Europe made this really good faith effort to try and try and save the deal in a way that also worked within the confines of what the United States wanted and, and what the Trump administration wanted. But when that ultimately didn't work out, it put them in this really bad position of saying, well, we can't, you know, it's not just Iran. This is a deal that Europe negotiated that they, they had, they put a lot of uh, effort into not just, you know, originally sanctioning Iran to bring them to the table, but also achieving this deal. So they've got, like, they've really like, got a lot of like way back, it. right. To like 2005, 2006, right. Yeah. When they, when they first started these, like the EU three, I think it was called at the time, like started yeah. these, these negotiations way back when. Um, yeah, so- I remember how, how hopeless those felt at the time <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, how much that changed over the course of, of negotiating the JCPOA. So over the coming weeks and, and months, um, it seems that you know th- there's going to be like certain inflection points um, that, that may be reached um, in terms of how all sides approach this issue. Um, one of those kind of key inflection points is – Iran deciding whether or not it will begin to enrich uh, uranium above like a certain threshold, like 3.67%, which is what it's allowed in the Iran nuclear deal. Um, Ahead of that, they've also said that maybe a a preliminary step to abrogating the deal would be um, what they do with their stockpiles of, of uranium. Can you just sort of explain what those moments, what those points mean and the significance of those points and of those steps should Iran end up taking them? Yeah. So just to sort of get at the significance of these, let's let's first go back to, you know, 2012-ish, around the time that this whole process started when we were we were sort of in a similar position with Iran, although Iran's stockpiles were much larger. Uh we were we were at a place where um articles were being written where where the, people were speculating that we might Israel actually might launch an attack on Iran as soon as you know a few months out. Uh, this is when we saw Benjamin Netanyahu stand up in front of the UN General, General Assembly with um, a, a picture of a bomb that sort of had this red line drawn on it that said, you know, that's it. Uh, we're not going to let Iran go any farther with its stockpile of enriched uranium. And the reason for that was that Iran had been stockpiling 20% enriched uranium. And 20% enriched uranium, for those that aren't familiar, uh, is much closer. You have to get to 90 in order to have weapons-grade uranium. But 20% enriched uranium uh, is sort of this threshold that scientists and experts uh, consider a tipping point. It's a place where uh, it's very hard to go from zero to 20 because there's a lot of enrichment that has to be done. Um, there, there's not a whole lot of the U-235, the, the, the bit that becomes the weapons-grade uranium, the important stuff. There's not a whole, uh, there, a whole lot of that in the uranium, so you have to sort of filter that out. Um, it takes a long time to get to the 20% enrichment. 20 to 90, however, is much easier. And part of that is is the time it takes. Part of that is that just mastering the technology to get to that point really is actually the hardest point. And so Iran had amassed this 
relatively large stockpile of 20% enriched uranium. And as part of the deal, they agreed to ship that uranium out. And so they've been living under the terms of the agreement with uh, about 300 kilograms of 3.67% enriched uranium, which is what you need for energy production. The the reason why you would need 20 uh, beyond sort of trying to get to a bomb is for medical isotopes. Um, and so like, that's well, like chemotherapy, things like that. Exactly. The thing mm-hmm. thing that we use, yeah, in, in radiation, uh, in, in um, medical uh, imaging, things mm-hmm. like that. Uh, lots of, uh, um, of those facilities use these medical isotopes. Um, and, and actually, that's a proliferation risk as well that um, I, I don't work quite as much on that on that side. But I do know that, uh, that, that that's a concern that some experts have mm-hmm. as well. Those medical, um, those medical isotopes, they can be uh, further enriched to reach weapons grade. Um, and the, basically, Iran uh, is, is threatening to go back to this place. They're threatening to go back to this place where they, you know, could could very quickly go beyond this these 300 kilograms of this, you know, sort of really relatively no uranium is entirely benign or or not a concern. But but this stockpile that they have right now, it really is about the smallest concern that you could have because it's it's sort of energy grade, um, it's a relatively small stockpile, and they are are threatening to blow past the the size of the stockpile for one thing, which means that in, in relatively quick work, they could have enough enriched uranium to um, be able to further enrich it and, and get to enough for one bomb. Uh, and then, you know, once they begin further enriching that uranium and stockpiling it, they'll have, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll essentially be very quickly back to the place where we were yeah. before the deal. So, so basically like, like that first step that that first threat that they had of, of keeping their stockpiles is more of like a signal that things could get much worse, um, rather than like a real huge proliferation threat. Rather it's that 3.67% enriched uranium. If they start to try to get to that 20% from that 3.67, that's when like the real alarm bells start going off. Yeah. And one really concerning thing, actually, is that uh, Iran has said that they will need some 20 percent enriched uranium under, you know, in order to, to power their their various reactors, that, that, that this is something that they need. And this is the same kind of argument that they were making way back before the deal. They were saying, well, you know, it's no big deal. We're not we're not enriching it because we want a weapon. We're, we're enriching it because, well, we need it for our, our medical reactors and we need it for our, uh, our, our, our energy reactors. And, and that's, that's fine. That's all very benign. And they even at some point have had arguments uh, about um, ha- wanting to uh, build nuclear powered subs and that, that would yeah. uh, require them to have a large stockpile. And so it's, you know, they, they always have these arguments that have nothing to do with weapons but the concern is uh, when you're doing when you're enriching uranium and you're enriching it higher and higher, and you're also at the same time uh, developing ballistic missile technology, and you've had a past of uh, having secret facilities on the side of mountains that yeah. look quite hardened against attack, uh, it, things start to look really suspicious. Well, and so, yeah. Well, well, so so let's sort of like kind of 
game out, you know, based on all your research and, and uh, all your excellent reporting, including uh, things that go boom, the, the podcast on the JCPOA and on uh, Iran. So, okay, say that they cross that threshold, they, they start enriching uranium above 3.67%. As they, you know, I think, you know, we're speaking in June, they said they do it as soon as July. Um, mm -hmm. So, so what happens next? Like, how would you predict like the world responds, assuming for a moment, as, as we sort of alluded to at the start, that Europe is powerless to save this deal? So what, what happens? Yeah. So I, obviously it's hard to speculate exactly what happens because we, we have essentially though, we have two choices. Uh, the, tr this is really, the Trump administration's going to be driving this train in a lot of ways. I, I, I have to, um, so, you know, some things are out of their control, but my assumption is that the reason why Iran is making this moves, and it's not just my assumption, they've, they've stated uh, that the reason they're making these moves is as a reaction to what the Trump administration has done. So when the Trump administration pulled out of the deal, they put on very harsh uh, international economic sanctions. Uh, these, not international sanctions, sorry, just economic sanctions. They have been ratcheting these up to the point that now it looks like they've, they've pretty much gone as far as they can go. Uh, Iran is saying, you know, you're really hurting our economy. There's been, uh, and I, we, they, we've felt extreme pain as a result of these, these sanctions and we have to do something. So, and this is not unlike what Iran has done in the past, this is very similar. Iran was also under very biting economic sanctions when we were in the lead up to negotiations around the deal. They were slowly walking up to the red lines that had been set. Uh, and when, by the way, when Netanyahu set the red line uh, that he did for Iranian and a stockpiling of 20% enriched uranium, Iran didn't actually cross that threshold because part of part of this was they they really didn't seem to be at the time enriching this uranium because they were purposely going for a bomb and and that actually has been us intelligence uh, and and international intelligence has has continued to sort of um, in the threat assessment say that Iran hasn't made the decision to build a nuclear weapon so this is all a little bit of a political thing they're saying you know we they're, they're kind of saying we want a new deal, <laughs> but they want it on their terms. So the Trump administration can make two choices at this point. They can make the choice to, you know, send some signals that indicate to Iran that they're willing and open to negotiate. And those signals might be, you know, moves that we see publicly. They might be moves that are made privately, uh, you know, U.S. forces say, you know, aren't deployed as quickly or are pulled back in some way. Uh, there are things that, that we can do to signal to Iran that we're willing to talk. And those, those things might open the door to new negotiations. Uh, they can make another choice. They can continue to ratchet up the pressure. And because sanctions because we're at the point we are with sanctions, where there aren't a lot of additional sanctions that the U.S. has the option to to, to put on Iran, uh, we can wait it out. We can see if Iran capitulates, uh, or we can continue to to ratchet up the military pressure. And and the only place where we can sort of go from here 
is the threat of military action. Again, if you're very much for the strategy of, of maximum pressure and you believe that Iran is so worried about actual military action that they will capitulate, uh, maybe maybe you do that. Maybe you take the risk. Uh, but in taking that risk, the, the risk that it is, is that you go to war. And every essentially every um, military commander, every every uh, head of the Pentagon in in many years has said this is not a good it's not a good idea to go to war with Iran because it's it's quite a large country. I, it would be a boondoggle. Um, and so that's where we are. We're, we're in a place where we have a series of choices to make. And those choices are extremely important. Every choice that we make along the way will determine whether or not we have a war with Iran or we you know, re-enter something that looks like the JCPOA or we negotiate a follow-on agreement. All I think all those options are still on the table, but it, it will all depend on what we do. Yeah, I'm I'm sort of it's somewhat refreshing, I'd say, to hear that you don't think that sort of war is is inevitable. Um, yeah, I, I, from where I sit, it, you know, it seems like at this point the like the probable outcome. Um, and you know, we came really close to it last week. It seems when mm-hmm. you know Trump called on then off these these military strikes. Um, I guess I'm also wondering. You know, what are some of like the domestic political considerations in Iran that um, would suggest that that some elements of the regime there want to provoke the United States? Like, what was the incentive, do you think, for certain elements of the regime to want to, say, shoot down that that drone? Yeah. So there's a, Iran has a, a very interesting political environment. Um it, it's, you know, I think a lot of uh, folks sort of miss because we we often refer to uh, the Ayatollah as the supreme leader. Um, it feels a lot of folks sort of just assume this is this is sort of a, a, a dictatorship situation. Um, the people don't have a lot of say. Uh, there aren't necessarily different factions within Iran's government that that have different ideas about Iran's role in the world. Um that's that that would be uh, an unfair assumption that Iran is uh, has a has a complicated ecosystem. Um, the folks who are, you know, President Rouhani right now is is partly in power because there was a, a large uprising of Iran's people the last time uh, President Ahmadinejad was reinstalled. And they were very unhappy to see such a hardline uh, leader take the take the helm again. And they really pushed for a more reformist uh, government. And and that's sort of that's one of the reasons it seems why uh, Iran was open to negotiating the JCPOA. But Iran also has a very hardline faction in its in the Iran, Iran Revolutionary Guard, uh, which is you know sort of Iran's hardline military faction. Um, 
Some folks have argued, you know, including uh, Jason Rezaian, the Washington Post journalist who was held in Iran for 544 days. He he argued that one of the reasons why he was taken captive is because the Revolutionary Guard really wanted to scuttle the Iran deal. That that they, even though they were, you know, Iran's military, part of Iran's establishment, that they were opposed to what President Rouhani and Javad Zarif were doing uh, in negotiating the Iran deal. So you have a lot of sort of competing factions. There's one argument that, you know, someone in the Revolutionary Guard might have have wanted to shoot down this drone to to press us toward war. It's the same kind of argument that someone might make about John Bolton or or President Trump saying that, you know, these folks, they want war. They're just trying to egg us on. Um, You know, how how much those are based in reality, I I really can't say. Uh, But that is that is one possibility, uh, certainly within Iran's government. And 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 but there's a possibility on the other side that folks do want to negotiate. So, you know, you've laid out a couple of scenarios, one that would um, lead towards some sort of new negotiation, one that would lead towards, you know, conflict and and war. What um, events or or what um, sort of indicators will you look towards that would suggest to you, you know, which way this might go, whether one outcome is more likely or not than the other? Yeah, I think we're going to have to watch uh, over the coming days and weeks what the Trump administration does next. Uh, When we see them doing things like sanctioning Javad Zarif or, uh, you know, sanctioning uh, the Ayatollah. And and you said Javad Zarif is the foreign minister of Iran and one of the key negotiators of the uh, Iran nuclear deal, sort of a counterpart to John Kerry. I'm actually sort of about um, maybe four blocks from where he went to a graduate school in Denver, (laughs) um, where I'm talking to you. Um, But the idea is if you were to sanction him, you're basically cutting off the prospect for diplomacy, right? Because you're the one that you're interacting with. Well, so it's also just it's a very provocative move, right? It's it's a, a lot of the, the these new sanctions, these sanctions of Ayatollah Khamenei and and of Javad Zarif, they're symbolic actions. They're 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 signaling essentially to Iran. They're the kind of signaling that I think if we're if we don't want to go to war, if we don't want to continue to escalate the pressure, that we want to be seeing the opposite kind of signaling from the Trump administration. Right now, these kinds of moves are they're provocative. Uh, they're things that are sort of meant to um, keep ratcheting up the pressure. And when you see the Trump administration continuing to do that, continuing to ratchet up the pressure, then that, from from my seat, makes me concerned because it means that they they are very willing to take that risk that we could go to war and you know that that is essentially that tracks very closely with the idea that they are pursuing a maximum pressure strategy a maximum pressure strategy assumes that you know you are the United States you're you're the big bully on the block and you can push your weight around enough that whoever the guy is on the other side is eventually going to back down. It's it's this game of chicken that we find ourselves in right now with Iran. And if you believe that Iran is the type of country that would be willing to stand up and uh, and 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 stand up for itself essentially and 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 challenge us uh, or or even call our bluff, say it is a bluff, 
then you know we're taking a we're, we're putting ourselves in a very precarious position in in taking this line of reasoning. On the other hand, it, they they could uh, it it could lead to another negotiation, and this that's perhaps the the calculation that the Trump administration is making right now. Uh, if if it it is such that that folks like Bolton aren't just looking for a war. Uh, well, Lacey, thank you so much for your time, and and uh, I didn't plug it enough, but Things Echo Boom is so good. It is it's like it's, it's my favorite current podcast at the moment. I'm 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 loving it. I'm almost done with the season. Um, thank you for, for just putting that out. Thank you so much. And it's stories. So any of the, uh, any of the stories behind sort of how we got to this place, if folks are looking for, uh, an enjoyable way to kind of get the back background, um, that's the way. Yeah. I love my favorite story is, is the, the Jake Sullivan, uh, story. Oh, it's so great. Oh, he's wonderful too. Yeah. I mean, that that was great. (laughs) I'll, I'll, I'll tease it, but. I, yeah. it, it was, it was great. And also the explainer that you had, how Ernie Moniz, the, uh, the, oh, he's uh, so good. yeah, I, I love that guy. <laughs> um, but he, he, yeah. um, so he does offers like a great explanation, I think to listeners about how uranium enrichment works. And, and, you know, you, you did it a, a bit in this, uh, this podcast, but it, but it involves jelly yeah. beans in, in a useful yeah. way. Oh, his is much better. Yeah. The zero to 20, 20 to 90. Yeah. Much better. It was great. Just like, it's like a fantastic <laughs> sure. show. Congrats. Looking forward to seeing uh, so where, wherever it leads. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Lacey. That was, uh, I think, a very helpful almost preview of where things may go in the coming weeks and months. All right. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.